0: Good morning. Welcome uh, to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us if you have a Bible uh, and you want to uh, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as uh, Wade just read. We'll be in verses 18 through 25. And as you turn there, I want to mention an anecdote that I've mentioned before, but it's been a while. Uh, But whenever I was in college, I had to take a, a class on public speaking. And, uh, and I was absolutely terrified of public speaking at this point in my life. And, uh, and so for the majority of the class, the first uh, month or two or so, I successfully avoided having to give any sort of speech. It was a very large class. I went to uh, Texas A&M, which is a very large university. And so, uh, whoop. And, uh, and so I managed to make it about a month or so without having to give uh, any speeches. Uh, and then one day I'm in class and all of a sudden the professor just randomly calls my name and says uh, that I should come forward to give this extemporaneous uh, speech. And, uh, and so my, my heart instantly. Uh, just kind of uh, began to beat, Uh, I began to get uh, nauseous uh, and uh, my mouth felt as uh, dry as my hands were wet and so I slowly got up and I walked to the front of the, uh, the classroom, I turned 180 degrees, I faced my fellow students and then I turned 90 degrees and I sprinted out the door and straight to the registrar's office where I dropped that class because I didn't want to be humiliated in front of anybody. Although ironically, it's probably more humiliating to be the guy who ran out of the class than if I would have just bumbled uh, my speech. And so public speaking has never really been something that I've just loved. Other people love it. Unfortunately, some of the people that love it aren't very good at it. Uh, But we uh, know that there are certain people who are really gifted with the art of public speaking, with the art of Rhetoric, and so think about some of the best public speakers of all time. Last week, we celebrated uh, uh, martin luther king jr 's birthday he 's certainly one of those that you would say was just this powerful uh, speaker. Um, those who are fans of, uh, of history and politics and so forth might mention someone like Winston Churchill or Ronald Reagan or Abraham Lincoln, or you'd go really far back in time, a guy like Socrates or Cicero or something. Uh, like that. And so you think of all of these guys who are these great sort of speakers, but then you have this problem of asking, how, how do we define what we mean when we say the best speakers of all time? What do we mean by the word best, all right? Uh, do we simply mean those who are the most inspirational or the most charismatic? If so, then your list of the best public speakers of all time might have a number of false teachers on there. You might have a guy like Adolf Hitler. You might have guys like cult leaders, like uh, David Koresh or Jim Jones or something like that. So is that what we mean by best? Simply the, the ability to move and sway and engage an audience? Or by best... Do we instead mean something like not just the ability to influence others, but to influence others toward virtue and objective goodness and truth and so forth? Well, in answering that question, what do we mean? What's the purpose of speech and rhetoric and so forth? That is the theme of our passage this morning. You see, in the ancient city of Corinth, there was this cultural fascination with rhetoric, the art of speaking. And, and rather than kind of having these baseball cards that had their favorite athletes, Corinthians were obsessed with their favorite uh, rhetoricians, with, with their favorite speakers. And so the only problem with that, though, was that their, their standard for assessing who was best, who was good, was really broken. In, in, in Corinthian culture, there was this exaltation of the messenger over the message. What mattered was not necessarily the truth, What mattered was more just winning the audience regardless of the truth, even if that meant being uh, deceptive. And so that entire edifice, that entire idea is what Paul is going to critique and deconstruct in our passage today. Rather than using speech and wisdom to obtain the truth, it was being used to obscure the truth. So Paul is going to set up this contrast between these two different types of wisdom and these two different uses of speech. And this will be really important for us today in our particular context, because this isn't just a Corinthians problem, this is a human problem. And we see this in our culture even today. We see the exact same thing where truth is evaluated or elevated on the basis of someone's skin color or someone's gender or by their tone of the voice or or by their socioeconomic status or her charisma or how popular they are with uh, the number of Twitter followers or whatever it is, some other factor other than the objective standard of truth is being exalted and the messenger is exalted over the message. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. So let's pray and then we'll dive in together. I ask you first just to pray for yourself as you come in with concerns and cares and, uh, and distractions that the Lord would uh, give you eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. And then would you pray for those around you as well, that the Lord would give us collectively that ability. And then lastly, would you pray for me? more than anything, that I would just be faithful to the word. So, Father, we ask for your help this morning. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing, that my words don't have inherent uh, power or worth or value, but your word does. And so we ask that it would do what it does, which is to change lives and hearts and minds and so forth. And so we ask for your spirit to help us. We ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. We'll begin in 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, which says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. Notice that first word there, for, which means that this text is f- a further exposition of what we read last week. In fact, most of what we'll read over the next few weeks is this kind of extended argument that Paul is going to make. And so if you're just hearing this and you haven't heard last week's, make sure you go back and listen to that because f- the, the, uh, the first six, seven, eight or so messages that we'll get to in 1 Corinthians are all kind of making the same sustained argument. And so last week at the end, we read this in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So last week's passage ended by talking about these two themes of wisdom and power. So this week we'll pick up those same Themes. And so our passage today is going to explain the reason why Paul doesn't preach with, quote, words of eloquent wisdom. And we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, and that's not a critique of wisdom, and it's not a critique even of eloquence, but rather it's a critique of an attitude that thinks that the power of an argument rests in the eloquence of the speaker rather than in the truth of that argument. Paul isn't saying that whenever he preaches that he dumbs it down in fact anyone who's ever tried to read paul's letters would say there's difficult things in there in fact the apostle peter when reading paul's letters would say there's very difficult things in there so it's not that paul dumbs it down but rather what he's saying is that he doesn't substitute technique for truth he doesn't rely on rhetoric to the neglect or the detriment So this passage that we'll look at today explains why Paul doesn't encourage words of eloquent wisdom, because the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness. At least it is to some. Notice that's the language there. It says it's folly to those who are perishing. But on the other hand, to those who are being saved, Paul says it's the power of God, In other words, the same word has two very different effects depending on the recipient. As it's been said before, the same sun which melts the ice hardens the clay. The same gospel, as we'll read elsewhere in the Bible, the same gospel is the aroma of life to some, but it's the stench of death to others. As an illustration of this, take your friend and mine, Tim Hollis. Uh, Tim is uh, good at a great number of things. Obviously, he's a gifted musician. He just sang and played for us. But he's also a really good thinker. Uh, He's really handy in regards to fixing things. He created our uh, website. He's quick. He can jump high. All the things that a woman loves. Uh, He's kind of a renaissance man, all right? He's good at a lot of things, and yet there are some things that he's not good at. I'll give you one example. He's not good at making his pancreas produce insulin because Tim is a type one diabetic. That means that multiple times a day, he needs to get an injection of insulin in order to survive. That medication is life to him. Now, what if I were to take that needle and to give myself an injection of that insulin? It would not be life giving. In fact, depending on the, uh, the, the amount, the dosage, it could actually kill me. Why? Because I have a perfectly functioning pancreas. Take that Tim, right? I don't have type one diabetes. Thus for me, this injection of insulin could be death. But for Tim, it is life. The same object has completely different effects depending on the recipient. That's like the word of the cross. For some, it's life. But for others, it's death. Or to use the language here, it's folly. So what is it that makes the word of the cross so foolish? We'll get to that shortly. For now, let's look at verse 19, because Paul is going to quote from the Old Testament to illustrate his point. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart This is the first of a number of references that we'll get to in 1 Corinthians of the Old Testament. And what's interesting is a lot of those uh, quotations that we'll read actually come from the book of Isaiah, as this one does. It's from Isaiah uh, chapter 29, verse 14. And so let's read that in its context. We'll go all the way back to verse 13. Isaiah 29, starting in verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me as a commandment taught by men therefore behold i will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden now even without understanding the historical context of isaiah you can see why paul might quote it god is highlighting here the folly of a particular type of wisdom which is what paul is doing in 1 corinthians So you can see it even without understanding the context, but when you understand the context, it becomes even more insightful. The the concept of wisdom is going to come up a number of times in the book of Isaiah, and it generally represents a type of human wisdom that's manifest by taking matters into your own hands, relying on your own cunning, your own shrewdness, your own political calculations for help and hope this is why in Isaiah, chapter five, verse 21, there's going to be this woe pronounced, "Woe to those who are wise." Notice that next phrase "In their own eyes, and shrewd in their own sight." You see examples of this sort of mindset, not only in Isaiah, but throughout the Bible, this mindset of temp- attempting to manipulate an outcome on the basis of human strength, or human knowledge or human wisdom or something like that. For example, remember the story of Abraham. Abraham has been promised an offspring. But Abraham, because he's utilizing human wisdom, he assumes that if he's going to have a child and his wife Sarah is barren, what does he need to do? He needs to find somebody else. So he pays a visit to Hagar. That's worldly wisdom. That's human wisdom. Or Israel, when they see Goliath and he's so huge and they think there's no way we could possibly win. Or Peter When Peter assumes that the best way to protect Jesus is to pull out his sword and cut off someone's ear, that's worldly wisdom. Or another example is found in the immediate context of Isaiah 29. Again, we just read a quote from Isaiah 29. Then look what's just a few verses later, the very uh, opening of the next chapter, chapter 30. All stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation." You need to know when this is prophesied originally that the king of Judah at the time is a guy named Hezekiah. He's one of the few really good godly kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And during his reign, the northern kingdom of Israel is actually going to fall to Assyria, to the empire of Assyria. So many people in Judah were likewise afraid that the Assyrians were going to invade them. Why wouldn't they be? They had just invaded their northern brothers. So some of the king's counselors come to him and they told him, we need an alliance. We need an alliance in case Assyria attacks. Now that sort of thinking is generally wise, right? If you have enemies, you should have friends as well. If you're going to fight against the Germans in World War I or the Germans in World War II, or the Germans and Die Hard, or whatever it might be, then you need allies in order to help in that fight. But God is displeased with this spirit in Israel. He's displeased with this alliance, why? Not because alliances are bad, or alliances are foolish, or something like that, but rather because trusting in those alliances as if they're your actual hope and help is evil. It is foolish. Trusting in human plans, trusting in your own cunning, trusting in your political shrewdness to the neglect of the sovereignty of grace of God is bad, it's sinful, it's foolish. The problem wasn't, the, 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 let me say it like this, the problem was that Israel's hope was in their alliance with Egypt rather than being in their covenant with God. So now let's take that sort of historical context and literary context of the quotation in, uh, in 1 Corinthians of Isaiah 29 and consider that in the context of 1 Corinthians because that attitude is what Paul is critiquing here in this entire section on wisdom. He's not rebuking or critiquing wisdom itself, rather he's critiquing this worldly form of wisdom that's marked by hubris. What is hubris? It's pride. He's critiquing arrogance. He's critiquing a a type of wisdom that finds wisdom in self-sufficiency. In trusting, in the context, in trusting in some sort of rhetorical skill of this speaker. or, Or trusting in the wisdom and the words of men rather than Christ, who is the very wisdom and word of God. This is why Paul will later talk about the folly and the stumbling block of Christ crucified. This is another example of worldly thinking. The idea of a crucified Messiah or God himself dying is utter folly according to human wisdom. Let's keep going. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So Paul's gonna give us this, uh, this series of rhetorical questions. And Paul's point in doing so, isn't to throw all scribes or all philosophers under the bus. Rather, his point is to point out this particular potential danger. In the previous verse, he quoted Isaiah where God said that he would destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. So now, he mentions these professions that are known for their wisdom and their discernment. If we're gonna translate this into modern terms, you might say something like, where is the philosopher? Where is the professor? Where is the professor? Where's the PhD? Where's the self-help guru? So what's wrong with being a philosopher or professor or scribe or something? Well, nothing. That's not his point at all. But there is a danger. We see something similar in an argument that Jesus makes in Mark 2. Mark 2, 17, when Jesus heard of it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but Sinners. The point that Jesus is making in Mark 2 is not that so, there are some people who are naturally righteous and some people who are naturally unrighteous, but rather his point is that some see themselves as being righteous, and therefore they don't see the need for his righteousness. They don't see the need for the righteousness of Christ because they think, I have my own righteousness, and that's the same idea that you see in 1 Corinthians. The problem with the scribe, the problem with the philosopher is not that they're wise. Wisdom, after all, is a gift. The problem is that they have a tendency to view themselves as being wise and thus trust in their own wisdom and thus not see the need for the wisdom of God. In fact, the wisdom of God to them appears to be foolishness. As, as Romans 1 says, claiming to be wise, mankind has actually become Fool's. The idea here is that though things like intelligence and education are gifts, there's also a danger. In particular, the danger is that the more intelligent, the more educated you are, the more that you tend to trust in your intelligence, the more that you tend to trust in your education rather than trusting in God, in his intelligence, in his wisdom. As with all gifts, mankind has a tendency to exalt the gift over the giver, it's like when the Bible is gonna critique the rich. The Bible condemns the rich, and contrary to what Bernie Sanders says, that isn't actually a critique of rich people. It isn't even a uh, critique of of riches or wealth in general. Instead, it's a critique of an attitude of pride and self-sufficiency and the tendency to abuse others that is somewhat more prevalent among those who are affluent. By the way, there are also other sins That are a bit more prevalent among the poor, like covetousness and envy, for example. In other words, neither riches nor poverty qualify nor disqualify you for the kingdom. And neither does a high IQ or low IQ or a lot of educational status or little educational status. So again, Paul isn't criticizing wisdom. He's criticizing this trust in human wisdom, in earthly wisdom. Notice that final phrase of this this, uh, text, wisdom of the world. The reason that Paul scoffs and critiques the scribe and the debater isn't because they're wise, it's because they're worldly. And the problem with worldly wisdom is that it isn't actually wise. In fact, it's actually folly dressed up to look like wisdom. There's a scene from the, uh, the office where a character named uh, Dwight, Dwight K. Schrute, he has to give a speech, and like me, in college, he was absolutely terrified. So his nemesis, Jim, prints off a copy of a speech and gives it to him and says, hey, here's some points, might help you. Unfortunately, some of you have seen the episode, and unfortunately, he gives him a speech that was written 80 years ago by the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. So Dwight's giving this speech and he's pounding his fists and he's yelling about how blood alone moves the wheels of history. And the crowd is engaged. They are absolutely eating it up. Not because they actually agree with fascism, which is what the speech is about, but simply because Dwight is really passionate. But there's a big problem when passion is more persuasive than truth. We saw that last semester in theological equipping. We talked about things like love and justice. The problem with most conversations today about social justice is not that the gospel has nothing to do with justice. The Bible absolutely has something to do and say about justice. Rather, the problem is that the term, quote, social justice is actually a Trojan horse. And inside that Trojan horse that's labeled social justice, inside is hidden injustice. Injustice. That's the problem. It's the devil disguised as an angel of light. If you really love justice, then you'll hate social justice, as the world defines the term. Today, there's nothing worse for the actual oppressed than falsehoods disguised as lies, injustice disguised as truth. Most of what you see is just empty rhetoric, persuasive passion that actually perverts the truth. And that's what's happening in the historical context in 1 Corinthians as well. The problem isn't wisdom, the problem isn't philosophy, the problem is when folly is disguised as wisdom and when rhetoric and passion are exalted over the truth. And here's the problem with this wisdom, it's everywhere. That's why it's called the wisdom of the world, it's the spirit of the age that we assimilate subconsciously if we're not careful. It's in the very air that we breathe, it's our TV shows, Even the innocent ones that we mindlessly consume because they lack explicit content. It's in the music that we listen to, even the quote Christian music. It's in the books that we read. It's in the news that we hear and on and on we could go. By the way, I'm not saying that you therefore shouldn't watch TV or movies or listen to music or something like that. Zach talked about that in Theological Whipping, in fact, this morning. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it uh, at all. I'm saying you shouldn't do it without discernment and critical thinking. Because though the wisdom of the world is everywhere, it's often not wise. For example, at some point in human history, you realize this, you realize at some point it was obvious to everyone in the world that the best way to treat a fever was what? By bleeding, by putting leeches on someone. At some point in human history, it was obvious to everyone in the world that the world was flat and that the sun and the other planets rotated around the earth. Some of you may still believe that. If so, please email me. My email is carl at (laughs) theparkwaychurch.com. At some point, it was apparent to so many that people with dark skin were less human than people with light skin. But likewise, today we swung the pendulum the other way. Uh, Today it seems so obvious to so many that any disparity between the races have to be due to discrimination or that any distinctions between the sexes are misogynistic or that we should be able to marry whomever we love. Society shouldn't tell, us, uh, society shouldn't tell women what to do with their bodies. Gender is just a social construct with no real biological basis. All of these things seem rather self-evident in most of culture today. Thus, if you deny them, you're a bigot, you're a fool. And the problem, isn't this, the, the problem is this isn't just the, quote, secular world. This mindset permeates the church as well. I've seen all of those assumptions play out among pastors today. I also see it anytime someone elevates tone over truth. The tone of the messenger, I didn't like that, so I'm gonna discount the truth of the message that's pretty much exactly what Paul is critiquing, the exaltation of some sort of rhetorical technique over the truth, and this is everywhere. Let me give you an illustration of how prevalent this is, even though it's not seen. This past week, the, uh, the staff guys minus Carl, who was on COVID quarantine, we went to some land for a little bit of a staff retreat uh, went, went to some land and, and the moment we got there I started sneezing my eyes started watering uh, because my allergies were going absolutely haywire that or Jared poisoned me if, if I die it's Jared uh, now I normally don't have bad allergies so I was really confused why all of a sudden my body was attacking me until we went out driving at night in this uh, ATV and uh, we're trying to find some feral hogs to eliminate and as we were driving we had this uh, bright headlight and, uh, and, and as we were driving along in the pitch black darkness with this headlight, you could see these dust particles uh, floating around in the air, they were so dense, it looked like it was actually raining. Had the lights been turned off, we never would have seen the dust, though I would have certainly continued to feel the effects and likewise you might think of the wisdom of the world like that dust. These unseen assumptions. That even though they're not seen, they nevertheless pollute our minds until the light of Scripture shines on them, revealing that the air that we think we're breathing isn't all that pure. Our natural wisdom isn't all that wise. In fact, sometimes it's downright foolish. Let's keep going. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, God is too wise to make human wisdom the means, the instrument to arrive at knowing God. Why? Because our wisdom is polluted with folly. If our innate wisdom is the means of knowing God, then we're out of luck because we're not all that wise. Theologians call this the noetic effects of the fall. Noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, noetic from the Greek word for mind because not only are spirits and our bodies have been affected by the fall, but also our minds. Our minds have been affected by sin. We don't reason or think like we should. Again, we just read, uh, or I quoted from Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, we actually become fools. Our gauge is broken. It's untrustworthy. So it's really good news that God doesn't make human wisdom the means of knowing him. How cruel would it be for God to force us to find our way to him by means of an instrument as broken as our own wisdom, our own conscience, our own minds. But he doesn't do that. He saves us not through our innate wisdom, but rather through something better. We'll read that shortly. And in doing so, he thus pulls the rug out from any human boasting. He puts all of us all on the same footing. Whether you have an IQ of 200 or 50, whether you have multiple uh, doctorates or you didn't even finish high school, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, which is what he's going to say next, regardless of your natural intelligence, your education, your gender, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, or any other criteria, it's the message of Christ crucified that saves. Let's look at verses 22 through 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we've already talked quite a bit about the Greek obsession with wisdom. According to Aristotle, wisdom was the most perfect of the modes of knowledge. But unfortunately, wisdom eventually became less about arriving at truth and more about winning over an audience regardless of the truth. And so the Greeks were all about their preconceived notions of wisdom. What about the Jews seeking signs? We see this throughout Jesus' ministry, whereby his audience, in particular the Pharisees and and, uh, scribes and so forth, are regularly asking him for signs, do another sign, do another sign. And in some sense, Jesus does signs. He heals the sick, he casts out demons, he feeds the 5,000, he calms the storm, he walks on water, he turns water to wine, etc but then he's crucified, and that's a big problem to the Jewish mind. Why is that such a big problem to the Hebrew mindset? Because of the very meaning of the word Messiah. The idea of Christ crucified is almost a contradiction in Jewish thought. Christ, or in Greek, Christos, is equivalent to Messiah, or in Hebrew, Mashiach, those mean the same things. They both mean what we would translate in English as anointed. And who is anointed? Well, you anoint a king. And what is that king expected to do? That king is expected to defeat his enemies and usher in eschatological peace. Shalom. So, how can that ultimate king be crucified? That's the concern. It's kind of hard to defeat your enemies if you're dead. And that's the struggle for the Jews. Christ crucified is an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. So Justin Martyr, who Jerry talked about last week in Theological Equipping, in his dialogue with Trifo, was a a Jewish rabbi, he writes that the rabbi responded to the gospel message like this. He says, passages of scripture compel us, that's Jews, to await one who is great and glorious. It takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as son of man. But this, your so-called Christ, is without honor and glory so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. You can kind of hear the mockery dripping from his words. Christ crucified wasn't just an oxymoron. It was a stumbling block. It was a scandal. It was an obstacle to belief. It was this boulder in the middle of a road dissuading anyone from going that way. And this isn't just a Jewish problem. Speaking of crucifixion, the ancient Roman statesman Cicero said this, the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. A crucified God was worse than silly. It was absurd. In fact, it was offensive. In Greco-Roman theology, the gods have power. In fact, the divine world you could kind of view it as this ladder. It's this hierarchical sort of system. And the higher up the ladder of divinity you get, the more power that particular God has. You have lesser gods and you have greater gods. And the distinction is the greater gods have greater power. So you can see the problem with the cross because the cross turns all of that upside down because the most powerful being in the universe appears the most powerless. What is less powerful than being defeated by crucifixion, the worst form of punishment that you could imagine if you're a Roman citizen. So the cross was this ancient symbol of folly, of weakness, of shame, of indignity. It had the rhetorical effect of an antebellum noose, or a swastika flying over Auschwitz, or the hammer and sickle of communism. The cross was a sign of anything but power and wisdom. It was a sign of torture. It was this brutal symbol of oppression and death. And that's the symbol that we wear on our James Avery rings. You put on your shirts and your bumper stickers that you sing about in your songs. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with wearing a cross. I am saying that it might be the case that our familiarity with this symbol dulls a bit of the shock. It's kind of like re-watching a movie with some incredible plot twist Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, Darth is Luke's father, the Titanic sunk, who saw that coming? The first time you see it, it's shocking, it's surprising, obviously not the Titanic one. But now you see it coming, If you ever rewatch that movie? It's, it's lost its shock value. I wonder if the same is true for us because we're 2,000 years removed from crucifixion and all we've ever known is the glorious cross, the wondrous cross. But the reality of Christ crucified should be shocking. The idea that the conquering king is crucified, that God himself dies, the most powerful being in the universe is stripped naked and beaten and hung to die. It's shocking, it's scandalous. Why? Because it confronts our pride. It confronts our self-sufficiency and our presuppositions of what glory is and what power is, and what wisdom is. So in God's wisdom, he doesn't manufacture salvation from something that seems powerful and seems wise from the perspective of the world. Rather, he chooses what appears foolish and powerless. Why does he do that? He does it for a couple of reasons. First, so that it isn't only the learned and the educated who can be saved. If God made salvation dependent on your uh, intellect or your uh, education or something like that. That's really bad news for those of us who aren't as smart or aren't as educated. But God makes salvation totally of him, not dependent on the wisdom or knowledge or education or intelligence of mankind. And that leads to the second point, the second reason that God chooses what is foolish and powerless from our perspective. And the reason is so that all the glory would go to him and to him alone not to the rhetorical power of the preacher, not to the wisdom or intelligence of the hearer, but to him alone, to God alone be the glory. You're saved if you're saved, not because you're wise, not because you're smart, not because you're educated, you're saved, not because Billy Graham preached the gospel to you, or Billy Sunday, or John Calvin, or John Piper, or whatever it might be, You're saved not on the basis of their persuasion, you're saved because of the power of God and God alone. And that's good news for me, by the way, right? I can't tell you the number of times I step off the stage on a Sunday morning where I've preached and I feel as though I've let you down or I've let God down. I stumbled over my words, I got tongue-tied or tired tongue. I forgot some point, I felt too self-conscious and I kind of withdrew into myself. And yet what's convicting is that after so many of those very sermons where I feel the very lowest, one or two of you will come up to me and say afterwards, thank you, that was so helpful. And then I'll have a chance to repent for believing once again the lie that says that the power of a sermon lies in my rhetorical technique instead of the truth of Scripture and the work of the Spirit. Nevertheless, there is this tendency in the human heart that we all have, that we want to mix a little bit of human effort into the equation. For example, later this year in theological equipping, we'll talk about the Second Great Awakening, which wasn't all that great, by the way, because of guys like Charles Grandison Finney, who's known as the father of modern revivalism. We'll talk about him. Finney was a very persuasive preacher. Huge crowds responded to his sermons. That sounds like that's a good thing. What's the problem? Well, among a number of other things, he was a Pelagian who believed that man is not inherently dead in his sin, but rather that man's will is free, and that the preacher's job is simply to influence it in a positive direction. Think of the image of a balance or scales. Finney thought, if you could just find the right combination of factors, you can incline the will toward Christ like adding weights to the balance. So we aimed at the right combination of words and the right emotional outbursts and the right environment. This, by the way, is when you start seeing things like altar calls and the anxious bench in church history because those were rhetorical strategies designed to incline people toward the gospel. As theologically, the gospel was conceived as being less about the sovereign will of God and the power of the spirit and more about the will of the hearer or the power of the preacher, then philosophically and logistically, the emphasis was changed. Unfortunately, this wasn't just a phenomenon of the 19th century and the second great awakening. The spirit of the age is alive and well today. Maybe it's in some sort of rhetorical technique that some big, huge pastor utilizes. Maybe it's in the use of technology of some megachurch, Maybe it's in the emotions that the preacher is able to, uh, to arouse in his audience. Maybe it's in the fancy three-piece suit that he wears. Or maybe it's quote relevant messages. Maybe it's this huge Twitter following that someone has. Whatever it might be, there's a tendency to not let our hope reside on Christ crucified and the preached word. There's a tendency for preachers to embellish, to add to, to supplement And in doing so, to substitute for the gospel. Or on the other hand, there's a tendency for audiences to be awed by form over function, by style over substance, by popularity and persuasiveness rather than simple faithfulness to God's word. There's this persistent peril of adding a little bit of the human messenger into the message. But Christ crucified shows the folly of those attempts. Rather than being a stumbling block or foolishness, Christ crucified is actually wisdom and power. Because in it you see the divine power of love overcomes the human love of power. At least it does for some. Notice what it says there, to those who are called. We've talked about this word before, which doesn't just simply mean call everybody and hope that some come. But when Paul uses the word call, he means the irresistible, efficacious call of God's grace, which enables our belief. He means something like regeneration, when the heart is born again and enabled to believe. Remember the analogy of insulin to the diabetic versus the non diabetic. To those whose minds are captured by the spirit of this age, whether Jew or Gentile, the cross is absurd, it's offensive. But to those whose minds are captured by the Spirit of God, whether Jew or Gentile, the cross is life itself. Last verse, verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now obviously, God is neither foolish nor weak. That's not the point. Paul's here making a rhetorical point. By the way, Paul's not against rhetoric. He's against rhetoric for the purpose of obscuring the truth. If even God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom, how much more God's wisdom? If even God's weakness is stronger than man's strength, how much more God's power? In other words, the difference between God's power and God's wisdom and our power and our wisdom is not quantitative, it's qualitative. It isn't like if we just lift weights, we'll become as powerful as God. If we just read all the books in the world, we'll become as wise as God. It's not like we get pretty close to being like God at some point. He's infinitely more wise and more powerful than we are. And that's good news because it actually gives us freedom to just rest. We don't have to strive. We don't have to uh, attempt to earn his favor or salvation we don't have to attempt to earn his love. We don't have to strive to attain our hope and life and joy, but rather we can simply rest in what he's already provided in his son. And that's what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 18-25. The wisdom of God is contrasted with the wisdom of this world, and thus the way to assess power and truth is altered. No longer does the power of a message lie in the rhetorical abilities of the messenger, but rather in the sovereignty of the spirit So as we begin to wrap up our time this morning, I wanna just ask you to consider where you might be kind of breathing in some of the assumptions of this world, some of the quote wisdom of the world and maybe you're a little bit unaware even of those dangers. There could be a lot of implications of this. In fact, I think there's infinite implications of this message, but let me give you a few that might resonate. Maybe an area for you, where you're kind of imbibing of the wisdom of this world is in politics. Whether you're excited or you're enraged by the events of the past week and past month and so forth. Or maybe it's in the way that you view yourself. Maybe you think you're too educated. You think you're too intelligent for Christianity. You've got a doctorate. You're a member of Mensa. Or maybe you're on the other hand. Maybe you assume that God must love others more than he loves you because you aren't that smart. You're not that educated. Maybe it's in regard to conversations around race or gender or sexuality or justice as we mentioned. You simply assume the same assumptions as the world and you fall victim to mere passion. You find that more persuasive than actual arguments. Or maybe it's the way that you judge a sermon You prefer Zach because he's, quote, aggressive, quote, bearded. Or maybe you prefer Jared because he's soft-smoking and, quote, easy on the eyes. Or maybe you prefer me because I'm a quarter Japanese. You think I'm a nice guy. Maybe you think that our little church is sometimes too harsh, We should tone it down a little because you've kind of bought into this cultural assumption, this cultural tendency to elevate the tone over the truth. Forgetting the fact that the Bible is full of mockery and sarcasm and strong language. So my question is this. Have you been seduced into putting trust in something other than the word of God, which proclaims Christ crucified? If so, will you repent? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I confess that it's convicting to me. It's convicting to me as one who 40% of the time is up here preaching and 60% of the time is in the pews listening. So I'm convicted both as a preacher and as a hearer of your word, Lord, of of my tendency to uh, exalt something over Christ crucified at times. And I think if any of us are honest, I think we've done the same. And so I pray that we might repent. I pray that we might be a church that is tethered to the truth of your word, tethered to the reality of the gospel, and that we find all of our help and all of our hope there. I pray that you would help us, Lord. Just confess our weakness, and yet in our weakness, that's when your power and strength is most manifest. And so we pray these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. You've proven that by giving us your scripture, giving us your spirit, and giving us your son. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.